listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Well, it is my privilege to introduce our speaker for this morning. But before I do that, let me just mention that uh, about eight and a half years ago, when we began this church with a thought that our city and our region needs another gospel-centered church, as we began to grow as a church, the Lord, over the course of time, laid a few things on our heart, consequences of the gospel that the Lord would call us to as, as just particular heartbeats of Crosspoint. The first, I think, was was our desire to take the gospel to all nations and to be a church that sends people not just across the street but across the world and the Lord has been kind to do that. And then uh, very early on we just began to have a flood of, of young soldiers come into our church and the Lord has given us a heart for the military. In fact, I see Adam Johnson just returned from Afghanistan and I think maybe Luke Wolf is here. Is Luke here today? Luke is there, who is a doctor, a civilian doctor here in town, and in his spare time, since 2001, September 11th, signed up to be an Army Reservist doctor and just got back from his third or fourth deployment from Afghanistan, and, and we've got a whole room full of, of young men and women that have served in and are serving, about 10 guys serving in Afghanistan even now with the Rangers. So the Lord has given us a great heart for soldiers and our military men. He's given us recently here in the past year or so a great heart to plant other churches even in our city. And the Lord has sent David and Marie Baum here to be members of this church to help them prepare to plant a church, Lord willing, in this upcoming year. And then finally, the Lord from early on has given us a heart for the orphans to be a church that is full of boys and girls from, from fatherless homes from around the world that have come to be part of this church church, be part of God's family. And in God's kindness, he sent David and Pepper Wooten to our church about a year ago. And David is speaking to us this morning. David and his wife Pepper joined Crosspoint about a year ago, as I mentioned. And David is the director for Lifeline Children's Services, has been in that position since uh, about a year ago, September of 2012. Before that, David was in pastoral ministry, primarily in Florida, for approximately 24 years. He is originally from Memphis, Tennessee, has a Master of Divinity degree from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and as I mentioned, spent 24 years as a pastor before moving into his current role as the state director for Lifeline Children's Services. He's been married to Pepper since 1985. Their marriage has borne the fruit of three children, the more traditional way, three grown boys, Zach, John and Ben, and also more recently, they have adopted a beautiful young lady, Cheyenne, who is a gift to this church, and a three-year-old boy who they are the guardians over, who has a personality the size of Montana, little boy Jacob, who is also part of their family and their home. And in this past year, the Wootens have become dear friends, and uh, just folks that this church, and I know the pastoral staff, staff just absolutely loves. So it is my joy to introduce to you our, our guest, but really 
homebred, in a sense, for this past year, uh, preacher for this morning, the director of Lifeline Services for Georgia, David Wooten. Come give David a warm welcome as he comes to minister. Thank you, brother. All right, Matthew 16, let's go. I always wanted to say that. I love it when pastor says that every week. I always wanted to say that. So Matthew 16, let's go. And while you're doing that, uh, let me just say, um, let me just refer to the fact that I was a pastor for 24 years. And I can tell you that the two days of the year that I like the least as a pastor is time change Sunday. Because I just never got it. I just never got it. I remember one year I came into church on Time Change Sunday and uh, it was a traditional church where they have the, uh, the pastors sit on the platform, you know, in those chairs that look like thrones and all that stuff. And uh, I walked in a few minutes late and I was supposed to do the opening announcements and uh, the organ is playing. Yeah, we had an organ. The organ is playing. And so I sit down next to the pastor on the platform and I say, man, I'm glad you guys hadn't started yet because I'm running a few minutes late. And so the organ ends the song, and I'm ready to get up and do the announcements. And he kind of brushes past me, steps up to the pulpit, prays. Everybody gets up and walks out. <laughs> so what I thought was the prelude was actually the closing offering, and I just totally missed it. There was another time when I was serving on staff with a church planter here in Georgia and uh, showed up on Time Change Sunday. And this church planter was discouraged uh, attendance was not, uh, hadn't been for quite some time what he had wanted it to be or hoped it would be, and he was just really discouraged. And so I showed up one Sunday morning on Time Change Sunday, and it was me and one deacon and the pastor. And so I proceeded to try to comfort our pastor and share with him several reasons, I thought, why the crowds were really down lately and why nobody was here this particular Sunday. And he said, you know, this is time change Sunday, and people soon started coming in, and uh, my job became uh, in peril at that moment and that day. Um, and then there was another time when uh, I moved to Indiana. Most of my 24 years as a pastor, I was a staff pastor serving under a senior pastor. And, uh, but for a couple of years, I was a senior pastor in Indiana, and I'll never forget my first Sunday at the church in Indiana was time change Sunday. And I said, I'm not going to miss, miss this. I'm going to get it. And so I, I showed up. Uh, usually I would typically be at church an hour or so early to help get ready and to spend time praying with the folks and with the deacons and stuff. And I showed up early as usual, but everybody was already there. And I thought, why is everybody here? Did they not know this is time change Sunday? And one of the deacons explained to me, oh, we don't do that in Indiana. So I just realized there's no way I can ever win on Time Change Sunday. There's no way. And so you can imagine how relieved and happy I was this morning when I woke up to somebody kind of jostling my shoulders. Wake up, David. Wake up. You've got to preach at Crosspoint today. And I looked up. Oh, thank you, Pastor Brad. This is great. I'm so glad that you're here to wake me up. So I'm uh, glad that you're here. And in a few minutes... As folks start coming in the door with this deer in the headlights look, let's just be gracious and kind because it could happen to us, okay? Um, let me tell you about an event that's coming up here at Crosspoint uh, later this month, and that is we are having an adoption information meeting 
for members of our church as well as folks in the community that are really thinking through, is God calling me to adopt? How do I know if God is calling me to adopt or not? Because the fact of the matter is, just like uh, Scott has already shared with us, God doesn't call everybody to adopt. God does call some to adopt. How do you know whether that's you or whether that's not you? If God has not called you to adopt, it would be a big mistake for you to adopt. And if God is calling you to adopt, it'd be a big mistake for you not to adopt. And so we want to try to answer some questions. What does domestic adoption look like? What does international adoption look like? What is a home study that Scott was referring to? What is that all about? And uh, what is the cost of adoption? How in the world could I ever afford an adoption? Um, And just answer questions that you might have about the whole issue of adoption for your family and what that might look like. And so that's going to be on November 19th at 6.30 here at the church. And I encourage you to, uh, to come and be a part of that. And you can actually sign up for that on our website at lifelinechild.org. And, um, and so, I don't know what that means, but you can uh, sign up for that. Uh, and then today is Orphan Sunday. And uh, as a, a member of the team at Lifeline Children's Services and also as a, a fellow member of Cross Point Church, Uh, Let me just thank you for the opportunity to be here. Today, across the country, in about 70 different churches, Lifeline staff will be sharing uh, in some way about Orphan Sunday and about the the need for 143 million orphans around the world uh, that uh, are in need of the church stepping up to care for the fatherless. And so uh, I'm grateful to get to be one of those uh, Lifeline staff in one of those 70 plus churches, but in particular to get to be at my church with my church family. So thank you so much for the invitation to be here today and the opportunity to to share with you. Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 16, right? Now, if you have a brown Bible that's not real shiny, it's page 822 and a shiny Bible. Remember last week when Pastor was saying, okay, here's the passage, 1 Peter, and, and if you have a shiny brown Bible, it's on this page. I'm, th- I'm looking at the Bible in front of me, and I'm thinking, this is relatively shiny. I don't know if this is shinier than other Bibles, and so I don't know how to compare the shininess of the Bible, but there's two different Bibles that we have in the chairs now. If you have uh, a Bible of a certain luster, it's page 822, and I don't know what page number the other Bibles are on, but let's uh, look at Matthew chapter 16. And uh, I want to begin reading in verse uh, 24. And let me be careful to watch my time. Um, Matthew 16, beginning in verse 24. Let's read this passage and then let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look at this text today. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Lord Jesus, we thank you for these instructions to your disciples and we receive them as your instructions for us today. We ask your Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us and give us illumination to the truth of this text. We ask your Holy Spirit also to open our hearts to be receptive for what you might want to speak to us about in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, in our families, in our church today through this passage. We just want to come to you with empty hands and open hands ready to receive what you have for us. And so uh, may your spirit who inspired these words be our teacher today. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I think the best way to understand this passage that Jesus is uh, sharing with his disciples is to understand the I've kind of been uh, jumping in on uh, in this passage for a while now, preparing for today. You're just kind of jumping in with me because we've been in First Peter as a church. So let me kind of uh, back you up and, and ask you to look at the context of this passage. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. And this is the great uh, confession you remember that, that Peter made. Jesus, in, in verse 13, came in to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, who do people say that I am out there? What's the talk on the street? Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. Or in other words, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That was huge. It was huge, huge confession, a huge uh, revelation. And Jesus, in verse 17, answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Yeah, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And here they are right here, the keys to the kingdom. Thanks. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, you, you know what these disciples were like. You've read enough of the New Testament to know what these guys were like. And this was huge for Peter to have this confession, to have this revelation given to him by God that this one that they've been following is the long-awaited Messiah. And then when Jesus recognizes that this has been revealed to Peter from God. We know enough about Peter to know that he looked at the other disciples and he kind of did this, you know? He's kind of like, you boys get that? You boys see that? You see what I just got? See what I just did? See what I just said? We know that because what happens next in the text. But this was huge because Jesus, it's the whole point of Matthew's gospel that Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, the promised one. And here we have a pivotal point in Matthew's gospel as, G, as Peter makes this confession of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And then let's look, uh, continue to look at the context and see uh, that that really is a pivotal point because verse 21 says, from that time on or from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he might go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Okay, those two, for the disciples, those two didn't go together. That Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, the coming one who would reign. And oh yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. I'm going to suffer they're going to torture me, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised again the third day. I don't even think they listened long enough to hear, I'm going to be raised again the third day. There was just this disconnect in their mind. So much so that Peter, who now feels like he's really got things in control after he's just made this great confession, takes Jesus by the arm and kind of pulls him inside and says, Master, come here, I need to talk to you. Pulls him aside and says, listen, this will never happen to you. We're not going to let this happen to you. We're going to take care of you. You don't have to worry about this. This will not happen to you. 
He says, uh, some of your translations say, God forbid that this would happen to you. God will not allow this. We will not allow this to happen to you. And then you notice what Jesus did after Peter uh, rebuked him. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Verse 23, Jesus turns. They're over here kind of huddled. The disciples can't really hear what Peter is saying to Jesus. Peter's scolding Jesus, rebuking Jesus. This is not going to happen to you. And the Bible's very careful to tell us that Jesus turns, stands toe-to-toe with Peter, where not only Peter can hear this, but also the disciples can hear this. And he says what? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God. You're only mindful of the things of man. And the other disciples are saying, okay, I don't know what Peter just whispered to Jesus, but this is big. If Jesus is wheeling around and saying, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And uh, what happened was Peter did not want a coronation of Jesus or, or he wanted a coronation of Jesus without a crucifixion of Jesus. Peter wanted a Christianity without a cross. And that's what I want to speak to you about today, a crossless Christianity. A crossless Christianity. Peter wanted a Christianity that was going to bring to him, personally, celebrity and ease and status and comfort and he wanted a Christianity without a cross. And folks, I'm here to tell you today, there is no such thing. There's no such thing as a Christianity without a cross. And how many times have I tried to live a crossless Christianity? And Jesus goes on then to begin to explain what that means and to begin to, to explain to his disciples that there is no such thing. And so we come back to the text where we started today, beginning in verse 24. And Jesus begins to explain that the Christian life is a cross-centered life. And that for the believer, the cross changes everything. It changes everything. It changes our whole worldview. The whole lens through which we look at life is changed because of the cross for the believer. It changes our desires. It changes our motivations. It changes our aspirations. It changes our relationships. For you and me who are followers of Jesus Christ, the cross changes everything. And, and Jesus is trying to communicate that to his disciples. That this is not about how many likes we get on Facebook. This is not about how many Twitter followers we can come up with, Peter. This is about the cross, my cross, and also, Peter, your cross. You see, from the moment that God regenerated you, from the moment that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone to save you, you and I began a radically different life, a new life that has at its very center a cross. The cross. The cross. For us, it's all about a cross. So whatever was the center of our life before we came to Christ, whether that was me or my kids or my spouse or achievement or aspirations or whatever that was, has now, because we are Christ followers, 
that center, that core has been replaced and we are centered around the cross and the gospel, which is the message of that cross. I used to, and it took me a while to understand that, I used to think that the gospel and the cross was kind of the threshold of the Christian life. And that's how you got saved, right? You needed the cross, you needed the gospel to become a Christian. And then once you became a Christian, you kind of you left that behind. And you moved on to other things. You moved on to richer things, deeper things, things that are for the spiritually mature Christian. The cross is absolutely necessary, but the cross is just the beginning. The cross is just the ABCs of the Christian life, and then we move on. And I even thought that for a while as a pastor. In fact, I remember when my change, the moment my changing uh, of my mind and my thinking began to take place. I was actually uh, in Phil Newton's office. Uh, pastor Phil Newton, a pastor in Memphis, and we were talking about a guy. I don't even remember who we were talking about. And he said of this guy, he said, you know, this fellow really understands the implications of living out the gospel in his marriage. And I thought, what does that mean? I didn't say it because I didn't want him to know. I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. But I thought, what does that mean? Living out the implications of the gospel in your marriage. The gospel is how you get saved. The gospel is how you become a Christian. But this guy that we've been talking about has been a Christian a long time, and he's been a Christian husband a long time, and living out the implications of the gospel in your marriage, I didn't, I didn't understand what that meant because my understanding of the gospel, my understanding of the cross was something I had left behind a long time ago. Yeah, I carry it in my pocket, and if I ever meet somebody that I have the opportunity to witness to, I pull that out because that's how they're going to walk through the threshold of the Christian life too. But for me, the gospel was not something I needed every day. And the gospel and the cross was not something that was the core, the center of my life. It was the beginning of my Christian life, but I had moved on from that. And Jesus is explaining to his disciples and is explaining to us today in this passage that the cross is not just the initial stage of the Christian life. It is central. It is core. It is every day. I need the cross today. I need the gospel today. To be with you and worship together, I need the gospel. To be a husband, to be a dad, I need the gospel. To be a servant of the Lord and be involved in ministry, I need a gospel. To be an employee, to be a neighbor, to be a friend, I need the gospel. Every day, I need the gospel. It has to be the center of our lives. And so that's what Jesus begins to explain here. And, he, and you notice in verse 21 that we read, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Peter, it is a divine necessity, the cross. It is not optional. Everything that we have planned for eternity future will not occur if we live a crossless Christianity. The cross is a divine necessity we must go by the way of the cross. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain in this passage today. There's no such thing as a crossless Christianity. So what does it mean? What is that cross that he's talking about in verse 24 that you and I are to take up? What does it mean when he, to be a Christ follower? He says in verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let me just stop right there and say, by the way, what, that's the grandest invitation that you and I could ever receive. To be invited by Jesus Christ to come after him. To be a Christ follower. 
it is an invitation to a life of abundance and a life of adventure and a life of eternal impact and a life of significance and a life that will be a glory story that puts on display the beauties and the goodness and the providences of God in a way that we cannot otherwise. It is a glorious invitation when Jesus says, if you want to come after me. And if you're here today and you're not a Christ follower, May I invite you, along with the Lord Jesus Christ, who through this passage invites you to come after him. Would today be the day that you would become a Christ follower? It doesn't mean a life of ease and comfort and celebrity, as Peter uh, expected. But what does it mean? There's a cost involved. What is that cost of following Christ? Jesus spells it out for us here in this text. And the first thing he says is... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In fact, when he says let him deny himself, the word is very intensive, very emphatic, and could be translated and is translated in some of our English Bibles, he must deny himself. Same word that he used in verse 21, that Jesus must suffer many things and be killed and be raised the third day. The same divine imperative that if we're to come after Christ, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. The first thing I would encourage you to think about today is if we're going to be Christ followers, the cost of discipleship is that we abandon our agenda. That we abandon our agenda. That we are willing to set aside our ambitions, our plans, what we have for our lives, and surrender that to what God has, what Christ has, if we're to follow him. What does he have for our lives? And when I say abandon your agenda or to deny yourself, we get this idea of some kind of monk in a monastery that is taking a vow of poverty and he's taking a vow of celibacy and he's taking a vow of silence and just trying to make life as difficult as he can for himself to show how spiritual he is. That's not what we're talking about when Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. But think about this in the context of Peter's confession and Peter scolding Jesus and then Jesus saying, you don't understand, you're thinking from man's perspective, you're not thinking from God's perspective. Peter's agenda was that this is going to bring prominence for me. We've kind of paid the price in following this guy, but now we know he's the Messiah, so pretty soon he's going to step up to the throne. He's going to step into the spotlight, and when he does, we'll be there with him. And we'll get to share that with him. We're on the path to celebrity. We're on the path to prominence. We're on the path to a sweet, sweet ride. And Jesus said, no, to come after me means to deny yourself. doesn't mean that we replace joy with misery and try to see how miserable we can be in living the Christian life. But what it does mean, as Jesus explained, is we shift our thinking from thinking about the things of man to thinking about the things of God. We shift our perspective from a temporal perspective and living for the moment to living with eternity in view. We live our lives with a glory story where God puts on display his beauties and his providence and gives us the opportunity to be engaged with him in propelling his kingdom and proclaiming his gospel and putting on display his glory. You see, God's will for your life whether it includes adoption or fostering or whether it doesn't, 
God's will for your life, whether it includes the mission field or whether it includes staying here in Columbus, God's will for your life, whatever it might be in the future, is exactly what you would want for yourself if you had God's perspective. Including all of the trials and difficulties and adversity that God has planned along the way to deepen you and grow you, all of that is exactly what you would order for yourself if you just had God's perspective. God invites us to be a Christ follower, meaning that we abandon our agenda to embrace His agenda. What does that mean for adoption and orphan care? Well, Let's look at James 127. If there was a national anthem for the adoption community, it would be James 127, right? If we had our own flag in the adoption community, it would have this reference on it somewhere, right? I mean, we always go to this verse when we think about uh, God's calling on us to adopt. And this verse says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Just my own personal testimony is that adoption was not on my radar, neither as a father or as a pastor, neither uh, relationally or theologically. Adoption was not on my radar. I understood the doctrine that we're adopted into God's family. I always looked at that as many systematic theologians do as a subset of justification, which it's not. It's a totally different doctrine linked together inseparably, but totally distinct from justification. And I understood that to a degree. I didn't know many families who had adopted. I wasn't in a church where that was part of the culture. Um, and so it just wasn't on my radar. I was going through doing my pastor thing and, and uh, considering myself on the front lines of ministry. And then God brought a little girl into our lives. And my wife became, uh, we lived in Florida at the time, my wife became her guardian ad litem. And uh, which down there in Florida means that uh, she was in foster care and the guardian litem goes to court a couple of times a year and just tells the judge about how things are going in the home, in the school, medications, situations. Are they good? Are they bad? Do they need to be adjusted? The guardian ad litem is the voice for the child in those courtroom hearings as that child is a ward of the state. And so this little girl was... Uh, uh, Pepper's responsibility as guardian ad litem. Pepper's my wife. And um, uh, so uh, it, it got to the point where uh, some uh, a critical staffing took place as to what this little girl's future would be. Um, and it wasn't real promising. And Pepper had been involved in pouring herself into the life of this little girl for a couple of years. And so she came to me and she said, David, could we adopt Cheyenne? And my initial response had absolutely nothing to do with Cheyenne. My initial response had everything to do with me. I had three boys that were about to hit their 20s, about to move out and move on to manhood and independence. I was already in my mind beginning to shop for my empty nest car, you know what I mean? And I'm thinking about date nights and travel with Pepper and, you know, parenting dialed down to a different degree or at least to a different approach when the boys are on their own and uh and and starting over at this point was not on my radar and but i couldn't just say that right scott you have to find a way Jeannie, you have to find a way that especially as a pastor you have to find a way 
that sounds spiritual. And by this point, by this point, I'm going to tell you what I said, and you're going to be impressed. But by this point, uh, I had resigned as a pastor. Uh, the economy had hit, and our church staff had downsized. And I moved over to work with Pepper, who had helped to start an adoption agency, a Christian adoption agency in Florida. So I went on with them to, to do fundraising and development for them, and was working there. So this was my answer to Pepper's appeal, can we please adopt? And uh, this is great. This is so clever. It sounds so spiritual. And I thought this was a conversation ender, uh, to use Scott's words. Pepper, I don't want to adopt just because we work for an adoption agency. I don't want adoption just to be a professional credential. If we were to ever adopt then it would have to be God really calling us to adopt. And I thought, that is, that is masterful. That is an exceptional answer. And basically, I have closed the chapter on this conversation. And my wife so lovingly and so submissively and so respectfully said, now, David, isn't he? Isn't he calling us to adopt? God's the one that brought this little girl into our life. We didn't go seeking this little girl. God brought her here. She has absolutely no voice in any system that she's in. And what will happen to her if our family doesn't step up and adopt? And so after uh, the rug that I was standing on got pulled out from under me and I stood back up, I, I promised to Pepper, I said, you know what? Then, then we need to really seriously begin praying about this. And as we did, God began to help me understand that to be a Christ follower, I had to abandon my agenda. I had to abandon my pursuit of the empty nest life that, God, that, that I was heading towards very quickly, very joyfully. And um, recognize that God had a different agenda, a better agenda, a sweeter agenda than what I had concocted in my own mind and for my own family. This verse in James 127, it says that we are to visit widows and orphans. As a pastor, I thought I had done that. I mean, I had gone at Christmas time and sung carols and passed out cupcakes, and I thought that's what this verse meant. We go to the nursing home, we go to the children's home, and we we sing some songs, we hand out some socks, and we've checked off the box of this verse. We've done this. We've visited widows and orphans. But as a preacher, I had done such poor exegesis of this verse because I had dissected it down the middle and said, okay, over here James is telling us to visit widows and orphans, one command. And over here he's saying, keep yourself unstained from the world, another command. Right? Visit widows and orphans? Done that. Christmas carols and cupcakes? Done that. Keep yourself unstained from the world? Really, that just means don't drink and don't chew and don't go with girls who do, right? That's what that means on that side, to keep yourself unstained from the world. I didn't understand that James was inseparably connecting these two. And as I began to pray about whether our family was to adopt or not, God began to show me that I, as a pastor, had become stained by the world because I loved a comfortable Christianity. I loved a crossless Christianity. 
and there's no such thing. And there's no such thing. And God brought me to the point where I was willing to abandon my agenda for one that was greater, sweeter, richer, better. And so we together as husband and wife said, yes, yes, we will pursue the adoption of this little girl. And this was uh, really different for us, really different for us. We had never done girls before, right? We had three boys. Uh, and, you know, up until then, Pepper did great with boys. She's a great mom of boys. She knows how to do boys. I mean, that's all we did. Just, you know, it was all trucks and dirt and bikes and ramps and knives and boys, you know. I mean, even back then, even the letters that would come to our house were male. So, we, we, adopt, this, we adopt this little girl. And you got an extra hour sleep last night. You got to work with me, okay? We adopt this little girl, and we go into toy stores. Did you know that there are whole sections of toy stores I had never even been in before? There are pink sections that I had never seen before. And so God began to show us what it was like to have uh, a petite little girl in our family. And so we began to do dress up and baby dolls and fashion shows and tea parties and all those kind of wonderful things that come with girls. And God gave us a sweeter agenda than we had ever had before. And let me just say a word to the men in the room. When it comes to, uh, uh, let me say a couple things to you when it comes to adoption. When we think of James 1.27, James 1.27 is a call to orphan care. It's not a call to adoption. I appreciated Scott sharing that in his testimony today. God doesn't call everybody to adopt. And so I see several of you guys, okay, good. That's good. That's good. That's good to hear a guy from an adoption agency say that God doesn't call every Christian to adopt. I'm really glad to hear that. And he doesn't. And you know what? We as men are protectors. And we draw this circle around our family, and we're going to protect anybody. Uh, we're going to protect that family from anybody that wants to invade that circle. And we're going to try to keep the world out. And we're going to try to keep sin out and pain out. And we're going to protect our family. We're protectors. And we are protectors. It's a role that God has given to us as men. But could I broaden your thinking a little bit today and maybe encourage you to consider that your role as a protector may not just be the members of your family, but there are some that the Bible refers to as fatherless. Who, who is protecting them? Who will protect the fatherless? Typically in our, in our nation and in most nations, the default protector is the government. But do we really believe that God has called the government to be the one to protect these children? Isn't it clear from Scripture that it's the role of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are to be the protectors of the fatherless? Isn't it clear that we as men, God has shaped us to be protectors? And we might need to draw that circle a little wider. And it may be, men, that God is calling us to abandon our agenda. Let me share with you what one of my favorite bloggers said, and you can read this at the blog pepperwooten.com. <laughs> she said, many see the world as messy, lost, inappropriate, ungrateful, dirty. 
We minister in the community to orphans in their affliction, like James 1.27 says, yet we seem alarmed when we bring the world into our home, and our home, our sanctuary, gets messy. If we visit them in their affliction, we also experience affliction. Children of trauma bring us trauma. We get messy too, and we have to be okay with that. And I had become stained by the world and didn't want to visit orphans in a way that was going to get my hands dirty or, or have to roll up my sleeves and get involved in sin and trauma and those things. But to be a Christ follower, we must abandon our agenda. Secondly, Jesus says in verse 24, he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Take up his cross. That is, we are to die to ourselves. We're to die to ourselves. We, we misinterpret this verse or we misapply this verse a lot, don't we? We say, oh, yeah, I've got my cross to bear. I've got a bad back. Yep, my bad back is my cross to bear. Or I've got a spouse that just really never stops talking, and my, that's my cross to bear. Or I'm a Cubs fan or something, you know, <laughs> that you've got a cross that God calls you to bear. That's not what this verse is talking about, not what Jesus is talking about. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is a crucified life. We have been crucified with Christ. And then in this same episode that's recorded in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, I die daily. Or, or excuse me, he says, uh, take up your, uh, deny yourself and take up your cross daily in Luke chapter 9. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, verse, uh, I think it's verse 31, Paul said, I die daily. It is a, a daily dying to ourselves, our ambitions, our desires, our aspirations. And let me just, by way of testimony, as, as we apply this to orphan care, and by the way, the disciples knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They hadn't seen him crucified yet, but they had seen criminals carrying a cross to their execution. And that is a one-way trip. <laughs> there's no U-turn. There's no diversion. There's no distraction. There's no recreation along the way. Those criminals were going to die. And the cross that they buried was an emblem of submission to the authority against which they had rebelled. And that's the cross that Christ calls us to carry recognizing our submission to the one that we used to rebel against, but now we follow joyfully. We carry the cross that he's called us to, and we carry that daily. Going back to James 1.27, uh, where the Bible says that we're to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. I never understood the affliction of the orphan until God gave me a front row seat. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. <laughs> and God gave me the opportunity to see up close the pain, the fear, the anger, the confusion that comes from being abused, abandoned, or neglected. 
of being one who is fatherless. And I got to see it up close and personal, and I got to live with it, and I got to touch it, and I got to experience it. And I began to learn that God calls us to take up our cross, which means we die to some things. And just by way of application, a couple of things that I've learned, I'm learning to die to. One is my rights. My rights. I was a lot like Peter in thinking that I enjoy Christianity that is air-conditioned and upholstered and comfortable and convenient and without distress and free from affliction. That's not the, the, the life that Christ calls us to as a Christ follower. And we don't necessarily get to choose a life that is sanitized and sterile and clean and neat. It is filled with affliction. I died to my rights. We also died to our expectations. Uh, my, my thought, and many adoptive dads have this thought, and adoptive moms have this thought, that this child, in this particular situation, this orphanage, this foster care, whatever the situation is, this child just needs a loving family. They've never had the blessing of having a loving family. If they could just have a loving family, then, then we would all be holding hands and running through fields of poppies together. And that was the expectation I had. That's, that's what the need here is. And, uh, and yet, many families deal with things like elopement and attachment and developmental delays and therapists and law enforcement officers and police helicopters and canine units and all of those kind of things. We have to die to those expectations. For some adoptive families, it's the length of time. I think that this, should, this adoption should take this long, and when it takes longer, we have to die to those expectations. Or maybe it's the cost. Or maybe it's a family, a young couple that says, you know what, what we imagined was we would walk down the wedding aisle and enjoy our honeymoon and first few years of marriage, and then we would uh, have our own kids, and we would build the picket fence and all those kind of things. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves dealing with the hard providence of infertility. And we begin to ask questions, God, why are you allowing this to happen? What is it that you have for us? And we have to die to expectations that we have because God creates families in a variety of different ways. And sometimes he uses hard providences to do that. And... We have to be willing to die to those expectations. It may be that we think that when we adopt a child into our family, that that child that comes from a hard place is going to say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are the knight in shining armor riding into my life on a white horse, and I'm so grateful every day I will sing your praises and tell you, Mom and Dad, how wonderful you are and how great it has been for me to be your adopted child and then when they don't sing that song, when they don't even know that song, we have to die to that expectation. It may be that we're adopting from another country and the information we get on that child, we're surprised sometimes when it's not complete or maybe it's not accurate and, and what we expected is not necessarily what reality is. Or in our situation, we assumed that we could parent uh, 
children that come from hard places the same way we adopted or the same way we parented our biological children. And we have had to learn a new way of parenting, a biblical way of parenting still, but a new way of parenting um, and, and learning how to do that differently. If we're to follow Christ and come after him, we're to deny ourselves and take up our cross. That is, we're to, our, to die to ourselves, and we're also to follow him. That is, we're to imitate Christ. And when we say imitate, we don't mean mimic or copycat, but instead we pattern our lives after the master. We embrace the master's life. We absorb who he is into our lives. We are in Christ, and he is in us. And so his perspective on anything, on anything, becomes our perspective, including his perspective on orphan care. And I, I appreciate what Scott said today, that, that our emphasis today is not on just adoption. Adoption is just a sliver of orphan care. Most of the children who are orphans today in the world will never be adopted. The vast majority will never be adopted. And yet the church is still called to care for orphans in their affliction. And Jesus' view has to be our view. Jesus came to a world that was dark and broken and crooked and wicked. And he didn't come just to give humanitarian aid. Orphan care is not about, for the church, is not about humanitarian aid. It's not about philanthropy. It's about the gospel. It's for the sake of the gospel. You see, the gospel comes to people who were slaves to sin, and Christ came to redeem them. People were enemies of God, and he came to reconcile them. People were guilty, guilty sinners, and he came to justify them. People were separated from God, and he came to adopt them. One of the things I love about the ministry of Lifeline is that it is a ministry committed to the proclamation of the gospel. We just happen to use the platform of adoption and orphan care. And one of the things I love about my church, Cross Point Church, is that orphan care is woven into the DNA of who we are as a church because the gospel is the fabric of who we are. Cross Point is not engaged in orphan care because it is humanitarian aid or for philanthropic reasons, but we understand, our leaders understand and have taught us that adoption is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. Listen, orphan care is not just making, is not just about making a child's life comfortable for a few years if that child will spend eternity separated from God. For the Christian, orphan care must be about the gospel. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so as Christ's followers, we're to be about the gospel. As Christ's followers, orphan care is about the gospel. 143 million orphans. If they were their own country, they would be the eighth largest nation in the world. You talk about an unreached people group. And about a half a million of them are right here in our country, in our foster care system. We don't believe... At Lifeline or at Crosspoint, we don't believe that the hope for the orphan is America. And we don't believe that the hope for the orphan is adoption. We believe that the hope for the orphan is the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel message that bears the truth about the claims of Christ. 
Their only hope is found in the gospel for the orphan and for the non-orphan. Because the fact of the matter is we're all orphaned from God. We don't believe in the universal fatherhood of God, that we're all God's children. If, if, we're, if we're all God's children, then the, when the Bible talks about adoption, it doesn't make any sense at all. Because adoption is taking somebody that's not in your family and bringing them into your family. We're not all the children of God. We are estranged from God. And Christ comes to reconcile sinners to the Father. It is as though God takes us into his criminal court. And because of the merit and work of Christ on our behalf declares us not guilty, you are free to go. (laughs) And if that's all that salvation was, that we had been... reconciled to God, that we had been enemies with God, but now made to have peace with God, we would sing his praises for all of eternity. But it's more than that. Salvation is more than that because then it is as though God takes us across the hall from his criminal court into his family court and says, oh yeah, you know what else? I'm going to be your daddy. You're going to be my son. You're going to be my daughter. And Jesus Christ will be our elder brother. He didn't have to do that. He was not obligated in any way to do that. But because of his rich mercy, he has adopted us into his family, whereby we cry out to him, Abba, Father. And we follow Christ by carrying that hope of the gospel. Well, let's finish by looking at verse 25, 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And this word in verse 25, whoever would save his life, literally means whoever would have a safe life. Whoever wants to live a life that's safe will lose it. And I know too many Christians that are trying to live a life that's just safe. That's not messy, that's not dangerous, that uh, doesn't take any risks, that's nothing too radical. We're not going to get crazy here. We're going to serve God, but we're not going to go nuts about it. Uh, We're not going to do anything that is just too abnormal. (laughs) And I appreciated last week at our adopted event where Tony Carter spoke, Chris McGuire gave his testimony. One of the things he said was concerning their adoption... This has been the hardest thing that we've ever done in our sanctification process. And he followed that quickly with saying, this has been the greatest thing that we've done or that's happened to us in our sanctification process. It's not safe. It's not easy. It's orphan care, whether it's adoption or fostering or uh, as our youth are involved now with a project in, with orphans in Uganda or whatever it will look like in our church, in your family, in your life, orphan care is not a safe life. <laughs> it can be messy because of the trauma of these kids that come from hard places. I heard a preacher not too long ago share this illustration, and I'll borrow it, talking about these Olympic gymnasts. Every four years we watch gymnastics. It's the only time I ever watch gymnastics, but for some reason the Olympic gymnasts captivate many of us. And we see these petite little girls on this balance beam. Do you know an Olympic balance beam is uh, 3.9 inches wide? 
it's not this big plank that they're tumbling on. It's three point, about the size of my palm, less than the size of my palm, that they're spinning and twirling and tumbling and, and jumping and doing all kind of crazy contortions and leaps and, and things, backflips back and all kind of stuff. But imagine if you're watching the Olympics and an Olympic gymnast comes up to the balance beam and instead of doing her, what you would expect for this extraordinary athlete to do, this elite athlete to do, she just kind of lays down on the beam and just hugs it really tight, making sure that she's on there good and not going to fall off. And she holds on to it for the whole amount of her routine, the length of time, and then when she's not fallen off and she's stayed there very stable and secure and safe, then when it's time for her to get off, she climbs off, careful not to fall, and then she stands up for the judges and she does her little... <laughs> what do you think the judge's reaction would be? And yet how many Christians are living the Christian life wanting a safe life. I don't want to do anything that would, that would put us in any peril. I'm drawing that line of protection around my life, and I don't want anything messy to get in it. Orphans live in affliction. Orphans live with distress and trauma. And if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, if Crosspoint Church, if your family, if you are going to engage the life of an orphan. It, it's not safe. It's messy. It's worth it. It's gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the Father. May God protect us from living a life that's sterile and sanitized and safe when pure and undefiled religion in God's eyes is to visit orphans in their affliction. I'm thankful for this church for so many reasons. I love our pastors, and I'm thankful that orphan care is woven into the identity of who we are, that it is a ministry that's not tidy and safe and easy, but that it puts the glory of God on display and demonstrates the very heart of the gospel. And by the way, Peter, who scolded the Lord for saying he must go to the cross, would later write a letter to the church that has been two letters that have been included in our New Testament, one of which we're studying through right now as a church. And just to show you that he did finally get it from the passage that we'll study next week here at Cross Point. In 1 Peter 2, 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He finally understood that the Christian life is not crossless. It's not a life of celebrity and ease. It's a life of denying self and taking up our cross and following Christ. And I don't know what that's going to mean for our church in the days ahead. I don't know what that's going to mean for your family in the days ahead. I don't know what it's going to mean for you. But I know that following Christ, there's no greater life. There's no grander invitation than you could accept 
than to be a Christ follower. And I invite you today on that journey with all of its risks and dangers and surprises and afflictions, because it is the richest, sweetest thing. Bringing that little girl into our family has taught me more about the heart of God and about my own heart than anything else could have ever done. She is a gift to our family. And I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And I don't know what lies ahead for us, for her, for Jacob, but I know that we are seeking with all of our heart to follow Christ, not in our strength, but his, because we don't have the strength to do it, but it is a glorious adventure. It is a gloriously disturbing life that God calls us to, to be Christ followers. Let's just respond to what God is saying in this passage of scripture today. Communion tables are here, and if you're here today and you're a believer, you are a Christ follower, you are invited by our church to come to this table, to take of these elements, to respond to the Lord and worship that way. And for all of us, whether you're a Christ follower or not, we can respond during this time with prayer and through this song that we'll sing together. And I want to pray that God would would help us as we seek to respond, not just immediately, but in the days ahead, what that will mean for us. Father, we, we, want, to, we want to follow you. We don't know all that that means or exactly how to do that, but we do come again with empty hands, abandoning our agenda and embracing yours, whatever that will be for us and for our family and for our church. And Lord, we, we come today ready to die to our expectations and the rights that we claim. We just want to follow you. We want the cross to be at the center of what we do and who we are. We want the gospel to be just blazed and branded on our hearts and lives. We want to be the identity, who we're about, who we are. And so as we come into your presence now just to Respond to you. Hear our hearts, direct our thoughts, and lead our steps, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.